you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 9. Thank you. Sorry, Jay, we're like locking you back here. There you go. Perfect. Thank you, Mike. That's great. And we will move this back down when you guys come back up to do, to do invitation here in a bit. Matthew chapter 9. Let me just kick right into Matthew 9, starting out in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a toll booth or a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. And so while he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, is it not those who are well who need a doctor? But those who are, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples, they do not fast? And Jesus said to him, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with an unshrunk cloth before the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine in an old wineskin. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine spills out and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine in fresh wineskins and both are preserved. So who's in and who's out? It's, it's the question every middle schooler asks. Who's involved in the cool crowd, who's not? And the first answer is someone that calls it the cool crowd is not involved in it. So that's clue number one. Who's invited to the party, who's not? Who's influential, who's not? And as a middle schooler, in my middle school years, I don't know anymore. I'm kind of disconnected now, I'll confess. Like I'm just, I'm getting older and I'm realizing more and more every day that I'm disconnected. But in my middle school years, there were clear stipulations as to what determined the answer to that question. Who's in and who's out? There was athleticism. You know, if you were a good athlete, then you were in. If you weren't, maybe not. There was clothing aesthetics and how you dress and that helped determine. There was hairstyle, what kind of phone you had. That really mattered before everyone just had, you know, the box black screen phone. It still comes out a little bit in the iPhone stuff, but like back when it was a cool, like my first phone was a swivel top, you know, you flipped it up and it swiveled. You guys remember those at all? I was, that was cool, right? So I, I would love to tell you that middle school Philip lived far high and above and beyond that question, but if I were to tell you that, I, I would be lying because middle school Philip desperately wanted to be part of the cool club. Again, that tells you that I was nowhere near it because I thought of it as cool club, but I still wanted to be a part. The problem was, you know, athleticism. I really wasn't that great at sports. I was never good enough to make the teams. I went out, never made it until my like eighth grade year when I finally made baseball. So that didn't really get me there. Um, aesthetics is great, but in my school system, uh, you actually every day had to wear either a solid navy blue hunter green or white polo tucked into khakis with a belt. We had a dress code, um, so no one, and it was to prevent that from happening. Um, phones, you know, maybe, but I, you know, I have the phone going for me, but I don't know if that was really going to get me there. So I settled on what I thought was the most likely option to get me into the cool crowd, and that was my haircut. Because I grew up, uh, for most of my young years, uh, rocking a flat top. So here's, here's a picture of Philip. Uh, that's my first day, of, sorry for the quality, that's just what it looked like. First day of sixth grade year. Um, I thought that flat top was super cool. But I realized into that year that 
really the flat top was not the cool hairstyle, um, that I needed something a little bit more if I was going to lock in. So seventh grade year, I decided to start growing my hair out. That one hurt. That one was not good. But finally, by eighth grade year, and I just want you to know, this is the year uh, that my wife fell in love with me, because that's when she met me. (laughs) I had it on lockdown. I had the coconut haircut that you put a hat on flat. I had highlights in it, because you had to get highlights. This was like 2005. You know, everyone was, if I could have had the frosted goatee, I would have had the frosted goatee, but I was 14 years old. So that wasn't going to happen then. But uh, finally, right, I had the hairstyle. I was going to get locked in. I was going to finally make it into the cool crowd, eighth grade year. And then I went to high school only to find that the boundaries totally shifted on me. And what I thought was cool all of a sudden stopped being cool and everything changed. And we can take those pictures down. We don't have to show those anymore. (laughs) Thing is, though, right, this question, who's, who's in and who's out, it really entrenches into us pretty far beyond middle school. Because in our desperate attempts to categorize the world, this seems to be the most straightforward answer to how to determine, you know, who can I hang out with and who can I not? Who can I be around and who should I not be around? And in a lot of ways, as we talk about this, I think the best word to put on this is the word religion. Now, when I say religion, I don't mean religion as in the colloquial, like, what God do you worship? Although that is under the category here and does apply What I mean by religion is drawing our dividing lines to decide who is in and who is out, who is good and who is bad, who is us and who is them. And then it just becomes how do you categorize that? So if you could think about it in some sort of community way, what we would think about is drawing this group of people and then trying to figure out what makes these people a group. And what religion attempts to do, be it the religion of an actual doctrinal religion or something else entirely, a middle school haircut, what you're trying to decipher is what are the boundary lines that decipher who is in and who is out. This is what religion has tried to do for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. This is what Islam tries to do as it says, hey, if you want to be a part of this, we have a very clear-cut code that you're supposed to follow. You need to follow the five pillars of Islam. You need to dress this particular way. You need to say these types of prayers facing this direction on this type of rug every single day. These are the things that you do over and over to determine whether you're in, because if you don't do these things, then you're actually not one of us. It's true in the Christian world as well, particularly among the more fundamentalist uh, things to our fundamentalist brothers and sisters. And I'm I'm not trying to be rude here by any means, but when I was in Socorro, um, the church in Socorro, we owned a little church down uh, in a smaller community south of the town. And uh, an independent fundamentalist pastor was planning a church, and he asked if he could get that building from us. And so we were going to just deed the building over to him. But before we did that, I wanted to at least make sure his doctrine was within what I would call orthodoxy. And so I asked for uh, a doctrinal statement from their church. I'm not kidding you. The opening line of their church, the opening doctrinal statement was members of, it was Glory Bound Baptist Church was what they called it. Members of Glory Bound Baptist will not partake in. And then it had a list of like worldly vices, including rock music. So if you join the church, you sign not to listen to rock music. Uh, That women would not wear pants. They would only wear dresses. And they set all of these standards. And again, I'm I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to critique that fully. I'm just making the observation. It's this is who we are, and here is our boundary. And anyone that doesn't coincide with our boundary, they're not one of us. They're them. 
And if you think that's unique to religion, it's not, because you could actually take this and apply it to secular uh, like liberalism in a lot of ways. And when I say that, I mean the idea of, hey, we're open-minded, we affirm anything and everything, whoever you want to be, whatever identity you have, that is what we want. If you affirm that, you're with us. But those people that don't affirm that, that's what's wrong with America. Get them out of here. We don't want them as a part of our groups. It's the same concept. It's just a, the reverse of the boundary line. Because this is what humanity does over and over again. We're trying to decipher who is in and who is out. So how do we categorize and draw out these boundaries? This is middle school. Like, if you have this haircut and you can play this sport and have this phone, you're in. And if you're not, you're out. Again, I don't know if middle school works that way anymore. Someone that knows will have to tell me after the sermon. But I think there's something just human about that reality. And this is nothing new. It seems to be the natural tendency of forming communities from religious belief all the way to ethnicities. So it's not surprising then when we actually find this at play in Jesus' culture, particularly among what we would call the Pharisees or what are called the Pharisees. I guess we don't call them that. They call themselves that. Because as Jewish leaders, they were responsible for maintaining the purity right and the holiness of the Jewish people. And in Jewish community, there were very clear boundaries as to how you went about determining who was in and who was out. You had the Torah, who was adherent to the Torah, who ate kosher, who wore the right clothes. And the Pharisees were responsible for keeping this in check. Now, we, we really give the Pharisees a pretty bad rap when we talk about them because in our Bible stories, they're always the bad guy because Jesus is always coming into conflict against the Pharisees. And, and that's true. Um, but put this into context for me, okay? Remember, the Pharisees know the history of Israel. And what happened the last time Israel abandoned God and fell into sin and idolatry and rebellion? Well, they were conquered and exiled away into Babylon and Assyria. And so the Pharisees saw that it was not only uh, their right, but their obligation as the religious leaders to protect that from happening to Israel again. So they needed to ensure that who they were was truly who they were, and every Israelite was well within the boundaries of what they had set. So what the Pharisees decided to do was, hey, it's actually not just enough that we say you should observe Sabbath in the Torah. We need to put some extra rules in that to ensure. And so, and this is what we still do to this day. If we feel like the outside people are putting a threat on the insides of the community, we thicken the barrier. We draw extra boundaries out here. So Pharisees would say, hey, keep the Sabbath holy, but by keeping the Sabbath holy, we actually want to put some more restrictions on you. So we want to tell you, um, you actually can't pick an object up and move it outside of your private domain. If you're to be moving an object out in public, that is breaking the Sabbath, and you are actually not a part of us. And you can't kindle a fire. That was one of the things. Uh, you can't practice medicine unless it's life-threatening. So there's another barrier that you needed to do. Um, and they would set more and more of these barriers uh, I had another one that was in here. So what did I say? See, this is my problem if I get away from my notes. It's, it's a scary place to live for, for me. One of the things, they, they didn't even allow people to write. Like, you can't write letters on Sabbath because that was considered work. And this, upon thousands and thousands of other rules, were the Pharisees set in place because in their community idea, what they needed more than anything was to protect what they had in here, Israel, from what might threaten out here. So let's go ahead and draw these barriers as thick and as direct as possible so that it's easy to look out into the world and to determine right from the get-go who's in and who's out. So the question is, 
What does Jesus have to say about this? Because this goes pretty well until Jesus shows up to the scene. And when Jesus shows up, he actually questions this way of life. He, he directly challenges this method of thought and seems to propose something new. And to prove this, Matthew is actually going to tell you his personal testimony as to how Jesus called him and the reaction to it, both his own and the people around him. So let me set up some context stuff for you here. Uh, we'll kind of break down the text, and then we'll talk about what all this means towards the end. So remember the stories leading up. Uh, we had a little diagram I showed you a couple weeks ago. Uh, I just copied and pasted this from the Bible Project. Uh, but the breakdown of this section of Matthew, that you get three stories. So let me back up a little bit further. Matthew gives the Sermon on the Mount, everything that Jesus teaches of who he is, the rules of his kingdom, the way it's going to operate. And then right after Matthew chapter 7, Jesus walks down the mountain and starts putting it into action, into stories. So Matthew is going to tell you nine stories. He's going to give you three stories and then a little blurb about following Jesus. And he's going to give you another three stories, this blurb that we started today about Matthew following Jesus, and then another three stories that we'll study next week. But each of these kind of sections have a theme to it we talked about. So these first three stories, the, the leper and the centurion's servant and Peter's uh, sick mother-in-law, it all has to do with outcasts, that Jesus comes to reach outcast people, people that weren't actually in this group. Jesus came to reach the people outside the group. That's a clear meaning of what Matthew wants to communicate. And then he follows it with this follow me point where uh, Jesus is almost trying to convince people not to follow him. Hey, the, the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus is, is giving all of this. And what he's saying is, if you're going to commit to following me, don't expect it just to be rainbows and butterflies. It's actually going to be pretty difficult from time to time. And then he gives this third set of stories where Jesus calms the sea and he casts out demons and he heals this paralyzed man, forgiving him of his sins. And it's all about Jesus's authority. And I think what Matthew's trying to do here, he doesn't say this, but I think there's a clear kind of line of thought. Matthew's going to summarize these three themes into his own personal testimony, into what Jesus is doing as Jesus calls him. So chapter 9, verse uh, 9, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Right from the top, there's two of these themes just very clearly at play. Matthew is the very embodiment of an outcast as a tax collector in Jewish culture. Now, there's a lot to be said on that context, and many of you, if you've been in church, probably at least have some awareness of that. But let me just, long story short, when Rome uh, came in and took occupation of another people, they understood that order was often easier and smoother when uh, they co-opted individuals from within that culture uh, to participate for them uh, in requiring their bidding and doing their bidding in taxation. Because it turns out if you send a Roman centurion who really doesn't speak great uh, Hebrew and he's trying to tax these people um, and he, he's not their same skin color, he's not their same ethnicity, that causes greater problems. So what Rome would do is they would then hire out people from within the community to kind of be the liaison between the two parties. These were tax collectors. And then to entice tax collectors all the more to betray their people in a lot of ways, uh, Rome would have a policy that is, hey, we need X amount of dollars this month. You can get it however you want. You can take more than that amount. You just can't take less than that amount. And anything you get above it, you get to line your own pockets with which then made tax collectors dirty, no good crooks. They were liars. They were mischievous. They were betrayers. They were traitors. All of these things were at play. And this is who Matthew is in this society. Matthew is undeniably an outcast in the clearly set rules of what it means to be a good Jewish person. And Jesus comes right up to the tax collector's booth and says, Matthew, 
follow me. Clear reference then again to Jesus' authority, because what this does is it calls us back to the story right before this uh, with the, the paralyzed man, because the next phrase, and he got up and followed Jesus. If you take that back to verse 7, in reference to the paralyzed man after being told to get up and take his mat, verse 7, so he got up and went home. Matthew's doing a clear tie to Jesus' authority that Jesus' words that got the paralyzed man to stand up was just as authoritative enough to get Matthew to stand up out of his tax collector booth. And you can just almost like envision Matthew jumping over the booth to follow Jesus, just leaving his old life behind for the new invitation, the new way of life that Jesus has invited him to. He's acknowledging Jesus' authority overrides his outcast status and changes his trajectory. So what's the deal about difficulty then, if we're to use that theme? And for sure, I think there's an implication about Matthew abandoning his booth and seemingly his occupation to follow Jesus. That's got to be difficult. He's willing to lay all of that aside. Uh, But the real difficulty comes in the Pharisaic response to this. Because in their worldview, right, in their worldview, there are certain boundaries that just can't be crossed, Jesus. And Matthew is very clearly in violation of those boundaries. You can't just go to someone like Matthew and invite him in. He is not us. He is them. So they have a problem. And as it turns out, when you read this passage, following Jesus might very well put you into conflict with people that don't view the world the way Jesus views the world. So verses 10 through 13. While he was reclining at the table in the house of many tax collectors and sinners, it seems that Matthew, in just this jubilee moment, says, Jesus, can can you have this same conversation with all my friends? Like, I'll invite them over my house. So Jesus goes over. They're having dinner there, and the Pharisees are really concerned because Jesus is eating with these people, not these people. And so having a problem, they say, hey, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 12, Jesus hears this, and he says, is it not those, or it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick? What Jesus is saying here, right, is I actually didn't come for people that think they're here. That's not what I'm here for. I came for the people that are out here. And then he goes on to say, go and learn what this means. Now, again, hold it in context here, because this is a gut punch to Pharisees. Pharisees are the religious experts. They would have had pretty much all of them the entire Old Testament memorized. That is like beyond our comprehension level of someone memorizing that level of text. But every Pharisee, they have a PhD in Hebrew Bible. This is the type of person it is. And Jesus just told them, hey, why don't you go and study your Old Testament? What? This is some peasant from Nazareth that's telling me to go study the PhD certificate that I already have? It's like telling an NFL quarterback to go learn to throw a spiral. Like, there's a disconnect here. But Jesus is saying, hey, you think you're here, but I would just tell you to go and read because you'll actually find the Bible is telling you something very different. No, go, study, learn what this means. Verse 13, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And it's with this phrase, I believe Jesus begins to dismantle this way of viewing the world. You see, in this view, you you think it's your virtue and your sacrifice that earns you a spot of who's in versus who's out. It it earns you your place within the family. But Jesus seems to be saying, if you would go and read your Bibles, you would find that God wants something far more. Uh, Because as it turns out, the boundaries that you feel set you apart from 
all of these outside people are boundaries set up in your own power. And boundaries set up in your own power will mess you up. They will mess you up. Because here's what these boundaries try to do to us. These boundaries that they set, they they try to teach us and tell us these things like, God God owes you. This is the mind of a Pharisee. This is the mind of even us in the church today that do this, that if I follow these boundaries correct enough and I actually follow God well enough, then God's going to owe me. God owes me for the sacrifices that I have made in prayer. I could have spent that time doing something else, but I chose to pray, and because of that, I know I'm in, and I know God owes me. God owes me for the faithfulness I've showed him in following these rules. God owes me for the things I've given up for him. God owes me for all the worldly things that I've put aside and said no to. God owes me for going to church. God owes me for holding to traditional family values. Yeah, God doesn't owe those people like Matthew. No, God doesn't owe those people. But God owes people like us because we're good and they're bad. We're in and they're out. We're righteous, they're sinners. This is the question they're asking Jesus. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Not with people like us, Jesus. And it's actually not just the Pharisees. And albeit in a different format, verse 14, John's disciples, John the Baptist, he has disciples, and they come to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, John's disciples aren't as forward, they aren't as critical, but they still approach Jesus with the same worldview. Hey, in our group, Jesus, we actually fast, and your people don't fast. I mean, how can you ever determine whether or not someone's devoted to you or devoted to your cause if they're not willing to give up food or to fast for a little bit? Like, how do you decide, Jesus, who's in and who's out without these rule sets to follow? You know, we we know that we're in because we demonstrate our devotion through fasting, but your, your followers don't do that. And so Jesus gives three responses in metaphor. I always love Jesus because, you know, people ask him a question and Jesus' response is almost always a question back to them because it's almost always this idea of, you think you know how the world works, but let me ask you a question to prompt you to think deeper because what you think or how you think the world works is not actually how I've created it to work. So Jesus said, first illustration, weddings. Can the wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. So, is Jesus saying that he has once and for all overridden the concept of morality, and there is no morality, there's no good actions to take? No, he's not saying that at all. In fact, he says, there's going to come a day that they fast. Don't you worry about that. But he's saying, for the time while I'm here, you need to understand that it's a joyous occasion, and these, my followers, they're experiencing the joy of following me. There'll come a day that I'll go and that will change. But in this present moment, that boundary is not what my followers need to follow. There's a context to what it means to follow Jesus and how it means to live that life. And then he goes on to give a story of a patch and one of a wineskin. No one patches, verse 16, an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. Now, I don't know anything about patching garments. Anytime I have any type of clothes break, I just say, like, here, Haley, fix this for me. And she does, so... It's not great, so, so don't hear this as an expert talking, but from what I've studied, uh, if you tear a hole in like your favorite sweater, and it's one that you've worn and washed a hundred times, but uh, you decide, well, I really don't want to throw it away, so you put a new patch of cloth over it, but this new patch of cloth hasn't been washed and hasn't been cleaned, well, eventually that cloth shrinks, 
and it pulls your sweater closer together, making it worse and perhaps not even wearable in a time before. If you try to do something new with something old, then it actually isn't going to hold up. He dives even deeper to this in this with the illustration of a wineskin. So he says, and no one puts new wine on the old wineskin, otherwise the skins burst and the wine spills out and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine in fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Um, I thought about showing you guys a wineskin. It's actually really gross. Like if you look up ancient wineskin on Google Images, just do that at your own risk. Because usually it wasn't like just a part of an animal that they stitched together. Uh, it was an entire animal that they would chop the head off of and sew the head hole in and then use the skin to hold wine. There you go. Isn't that a beautiful picture for your day? But as it would go, you know, when you're fermenting wine, uh, there tends to be a process of gas and bubbles and things changing within the grape juice. And so you would put that and it would cause the, the hide to stretch and grow out. And so you wanted it to be new so that it had that ability to stretch. But if you had a wineskin that was a couple years old, the hide was kind of tan and leathery at this point. It was dried up. And so if it stretched too far, it would eventually rip. And so you would have this, like, think full-body animal carcass that you're storing wine in. I know, ancient times. Don't worry about it. You don't have to do that anymore. So, and it tears, and you go in there the next morning to, to collect your wine, and there's, everything's on the floor. And all the Baptists cheer, yeah, no wine. And that's... That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is to say, look, you know better than to take the new thing I'm doing. It doesn't make sense to take the new thing I'm doing and put it in the old framework. Because if you take what I'm doing and you try to inject it into the framework, it will ruin the framework and it will ruin the message. But you need something new, some new way of visualizing and understanding this. Here's the point. Jesus is doing a new thing so that if it's left to the old operating system, it will shatter everything. So we had to move to a different operating system. Jesus is moving us to something different, what I would call not bounded, but centered. By the way, these are uh, anthropological uh, ways of thinking about community. This is called a bounded community. You can look this up if you're ever curious about it. But Jesus says, no, 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 what I'm doing is not tying you to a bounded community. I'm actually tying you to a centered community. With who, who do you think at the center of the community? Jesus. Like, Jesus himself stands at the center of the community. And the question is not who's in and who's out, because guess why? Everyone's out. No one is righteous. No, not one. When Jesus is playing this game with these Pharisees of, don't you know I came for the sick and not the righteous? It's not this assumption of, well, Pharisees, you are all righteous. Matthew's going to go on to say in Matthew 19 that no one is good except for God. Paul says in Romans 6, uh, 23, that all have sinned, 323, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has messed up. No one's righteous. So it's not a question of who's in and who's out because everyone's out. The question is, who is centering themselves on Jesus? This is what Jesus wants for his community. Now, there, there's absolutely discussion to be had about following the one true Jesus and what does it actually mean to follow Jesus. Because if you say, well, well, I follow Jesus, but my Jesus, you know, my Jesus, he doesn't really care. He's okay with that sin. Well, you're not following Jesus, okay? Like, there, there is still a standard, and I believe there is a standard. But the operating system is not this, it's this. So that we might land at some sort of saying that, that goes something like intentionally living like Jesus means centering life on him. 
that we all center our lives on Jesus. And this seems basic in a lot of ways, but it's a radical shift in the way communities form and operate. Because it's actually in this model that Matthew, who's probably like way out here, actually gets the chance to belong. See, Matthew never gets the chance to belong over here. But in the way of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus extends to people that you would think could never receive an invitation. Because this is what Jesus has set up within the world. See, Jesus comes in and he says, in this model that's all about your ability and what you can do to bypass these barriers, Jesus comes in and says, actually, it's never your ability. It's actually me. It's my ability, Jesus says. It's my call to you. It's my invitation, my sacrifice, my salvation. And I would just say that this right here, full disclosure, this is far more messy. And I get it. Because it's a lot harder to look inside this and determine who's in and who's out. And I think Jesus would just come in and say, it's not for you to worry about that. You're not the one to determine who's in and who's out. That's for me to worry about, not you. You follow me and call people to do the same. Let me take care of the rest. And I can prove that to you, I think, just one chapter over. Because if you go to chapter 10, uh, at the beginning of chapter 10, Matthew's going to give you a list of the 12 kind of key disciples that followed Jesus. had more than 12, but these are the 12 kind of in representation of the new Israel, 12 tribes, that whole thing. But if you jump to verse 3 of Matthew 10, it'll say, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, um, and Matthew, the tax collector. It's the story we just read. And then right after that, he's going to say, Matthew, the tax collector, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And then he says, Simon, the zealot. The only two people to get kind of titles, Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot. So tax collector, someone that traded their status as an Israelite citizen to Rome to line their pockets. Zealots were like the exact polar opposite. Zealots were the people that said, I am so against Rome that I'm going to hide in the shadows. And when a Roman centurion walks by, I'm going to sneak out of the shadows, slit his throat, and sneak back into the shadows because it's guerrilla warfare against Rome. And Jesus calls both of those people to the same groups. I mean, the, the best way I can think of it is like one's way up here murdering people and one's down here stealing money from people. What does a morning Bible study with Jesus look like? You just show up and, you know, Judas walks in, good morning, traitor. And Matthew's like, good morning, murderer. And Jesus says, this is my design to reach the world. Because I can call both the zealot and the tax collector who look and act and think nothing alike. They can never fit into this model, but in my model, this is the way church functions. And yes, it's messier. And yes, it's harder. But this is Jesus' vision for what his kingdom's going to look like. So that even here at First Baptist Church, it's not about uniformity where we all look the same and act the same and dress the same and listen to the same music. But it's about unity. So that we can stand up and sing songs that maybe you don't know well, sing by a generation below you and say, God, you're raising up a new generation, and I love seeing what you're doing. That's what God's calling us to. That's his community. That's what he wants. And there's a very real chance that in this community, you're going to bump up and encounter people that are drastically different than you are. 
that view the world in a drastically different way, you, you might very well encounter people in this room that actually don't vote the way you vote. People that dress a different way than the way you dress. People that prefer vastly different worship styles than you do. People with previous occupations and histories that stand in total opposition to God's standard and righteousness. People with addictions and struggles. But the single unifying thread is that they set their hearts to follow Jesus. So that the end goal is not them becoming like me or me becoming like them. It's us becoming like Jesus. More generous more merciful, more humble. And who is invited to that? Everybody. Everybody's invited to that. That person that you see in Walmart that you think there's no way, they have way too many eggs, they have the hair colors this, they, couldn't, they could never scale these boundaries. Yeah, neither could you. That's why Jesus came to save them. And he's inviting them. So the question is not where are they and are they here or are they there? Are they with us or against? The question is, is Jesus calling them and how do I show them that Jesus is calling them? And if that offends you, I would just say with all the kindness I can muster as I just echo the words of my Savior, go and study. He wants mercy, not sacrifice. There's a short story, and I'll close here, uh, by Flannery O'Connor. You guys ever read any Flannery O'Connor in high school? Yeah, great, great, art, uh, great author. Wrote a lot of short stories back in the 60s. So she wrote a story called Revelation in 1964. Um, just so you know, if you want to go read it, it's a really cool story. But it is 1964. It's in particular criti criticism against racism of a particularly racist woman. Um, so there is definitely some colorful language in there that was true to 1964 that might be very offensive today and is in a lot of ways. But I just make sure you know that. But the story of Revelation tells the story of a lady named Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin is taking her husband to the doctor, and the story's going to go on in this doctor's office narrative to tell of her internal conversation she's having with herself versus her external conversation she's having with the other people in the doctor's office. So she walks in, and the first thing she wants everyone in the doctor's office to know is, I'm actually not the one who's sick. My husband's sick. I don't have a problem. He has a problem. That's why we're here. Um, so she's, you know, clarifying that to everyone in the thing. Uh, and then the story's going to go on to talk about her internal monologue that she's doing and judging each person in the room. So she notices a particularly kind of young college-age girl across the, the seat from her, and she talks about how this girl's face was blue with acne, and it was, a pitiful, it was pitiful how ugly she was. And she just goes on to call her the ugly girl in her mind for the rest of the narrative. And how there's this particularly poor lady that she calls white trash, and they're having a conversation, and the, the white trash lady says, look at this jewelry that I just bought. And Miss Turpin in her head goes, you probably should have bought soap and a wash rag, not jewelry. But then out loud goes, oh, that's such pretty jewelry. Like, this, this is the story that's going on. And so it's building and building. And it seems like the only person that's picking up on her hypocrisy in this doctor's office is the ugly girl across the way from her. And she can't figure out because everyone loves her. She's always the kindest person. Why would this girl not like her? Why would this girl make ugly faces at her? So she's trying to woo this girl over and to tell her, just smile. You would look so much more pretty if you smiled. Uh, you should be thankful. And it just builds and builds and builds. She learns that this girl's name is Mary Grace, and she's studying at college. And so she, she's trying to just explain to her why life is so good. And so Ms. Turpin launches into this. Here, I'll put the quote up for you. If it's one thing I am, Miss Turpin said with a feeling, it's grateful. 
When I think of all I, uh, with who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything, and a good disposition besides, and by the way, we as the reader knows that she's not saying this out of gratitude. She's saying this because she's relieved that she's not white trash or that ugly girl across the way. She's who she gets to be. She goes, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. And at the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. And the book struck her directly over her left eye. It struck her almost the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Flannery O'Connor, right? I mean, you know, you have this character, she literally gets hit in the head by Grace's book. Come on, like, genius. So Miss Turpin falls to the ground, now below everyone else in the doctor's office, now in need of medical help when she was the one that said she didn't need it. And this girl whispers in her ear, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And as Ms. Turpin gets home, it becomes clear that nothing inside her has really changed as she thinks hateful and rude things about the hired hands that her husband hired. But the only thing that's really changed is that she has this really damaged pride. So she yells at God, how can I be both saved and from hell? You could have made me trash, and I could go live and be like those white trash people. I could have be like them in the waiting room, that I could act like them, but I choose not to. And then she has this vision. And there, as the sun is setting, she sees this bridge extending into heaven, and the story closes like this. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. Battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people she recognized at once as those who were like herself, who had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for the good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. I love that final phrase. Because that encompasses this. See, Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. But the Bible also says it's our good deeds that are like filthy rags to God. Jesus also came to burn away our virtues. Because it's not about who's in and who's out and what's versus them, but it's about Jesus saying, I've come to call the lost, and you are the lost. Your coworker is the lost. That white trash, that whatever, they are the lost. And I will burn away their sin just like I will burn away your virtue. This is the gospel. This is what God has set up for those who would entrust in him. And it is offensive to everyone. And that's the point. Because at the heart of the gospel, we come to a savior who gave up himself for us that we might say, okay, Jesus, so we give it all back to you. Maybe you need to do that this morning. Maybe it's a good reminder that the person you're sitting across from or in front of, that they have nothing in common with you, and you, oh, it's just so hard to see their face, because you're like, I know, and you don't want to think about that, but you're going to sit down and take communion with them here in a little bit as we celebrate that we're not a church of uniformity, but we're a church of unity. So how would you respond to this? 
What type of person are you? What type of community do you live in? Because what does it look like when First Baptist actually becomes this? And how do you participate in it? Father God, we come to you thankful for who you are and what you've said to be true. God, I pray that as we think through your kindness, your grace, your goodness, God, that you would help us to see that we love you. God, I pray that you would give us a heart to know you, to know your truth, and to understand that what you've called us to is not to set up thick boundaries to keep those people out there from getting in here, but an invitation to go despite who they are because you are rescuing anyone who would follow. So God, make us a church set upon you and your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to have a few minutes to respond as we partake, before we partake in Lord's Supper. If you want to just worship, you can worship. If you want to pray, you can pray. This is your chance to respond as you prepare for what we're going to do shortly. Please stand and sing uh, 10,000 Reasons.
supper today would come forward. Uh, I'm going to pray and get us ready as, as we go into this mo moment. Father God, as we come to you, God, I know uh, the service has been long, but God, let this not be just something we tack on to the end of it because it's what we're supposed to do. But God, may this be something where we sincerely reflect on what you've done to bring us not to a point of uniformity, but to a point of unity. That wherever we come from, the backgrounds we hold, the difficulties of our past, the sins that we struggle with, God, all of it is redeemed in your calling and your sacrifice through the blood and body broken and spilt for us. So God, let us reflect on that to your glory and your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, here at First Baptist, when we partake in this, uh, all we ask is that you would be someone that would affirm and believe in what Jesus has done for your sins. And if you affirm that and you believe that, that Jesus died for your sins on the third day he rose again, uh, then we want to invite you as a brother or sister in our faith to participate in this with us. So I'm going to invite the deacons to stand up and we're going to begin as we pass out the bread.